you can explore an exclusive collection of case law at Decisis Law Reports. Browse a comprehensive collection of nearly 14,000 reports of Irish legal judgments delivered since 2011. Visit decisis.ie to find out more. Hello and welcome to The Fifth Court, a new podcast on legal matters presented by myself, Peter Leonard, and... And myself, Mark Tottenham. Some of you may be familiar with our previous podcast, Law on Trial, which we had a very enjoyable time doing with the Business Post newspaper. And of course, we were successful enough to win an award, Mark, weren't we? We were. Best legal podcast from the Justice Media Awards from the Law Society. We're crowing a little bit, but it was nice to win it. It was nice to win it. Uh, well, this is a brand new venture and I have to credit you, Mark, for coming up with the title, The Fifth Court. Well, thank you very much. So, what does it mean? Well, I think we'll leave the listeners to work it out for themselves. Oh, okay, okay. Well, in this podcast, we hope to bring you on a weekly basis. We will have interviews with leading legal players. And we're delighted to start off today with Supreme Court Judge Mr. Justice Gerard Hogan. We'll also keep an eye on important legal developments and in particular comment on significant cases published by the Superior Courts in the week prior to each show. And we've got three really interesting cases for you today. But before we get into that, Mark, a very interesting piece by Catherine Sands, the legal correspondent of the Business Post and our former co-presenter on Law and Trial. Uh, And as the new legal year year kicks off tomorrow, it would appear there is a bit of a gender row brewing in the law library. She reports that some male barristers are unhappy about a bar council initiative to ensure female barristers are briefed specifically. That's right. It seems to be... um the, the 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 issue seems to be that they're looking for certain uh, bodies to effectively develop sort of briefing practices so that they ensure a certain amount of diversity. And obviously this is um, for, for people who are already established in practice. They're very worried that this is going to have an effect on their careers. I mean, my own view is that to a certain extent, this is a sticking plaster over what is a wider issue. I mean, there's no doubt that um, that there are you know, that the, 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 the legal profession was overwhelmingly male for a long time. Um, people, should we say, I mean, we're both r- roughly 20 years in practice. People who are in practice longer than us are more likely to be male. Are, are people you, who are are you longer, hearing you know, discontent from our male colleagues? Um, it is, doesn't does su- surprise you, this headline in the Business Post? It, it, it doesn't surprise me that there is complaint about people trying to, to diversify away from people. I mean, anybody who doesn't, who isn't turning away work is obviously going to be worried about their practice. Okay if they hear about this. But I think there are other issues uh, about making the law library a little bit more family friendly, such as the lack of a crash, such, such as the lack of protection for people who take maternity or family leave. Okay. Um, there, there, are, there are a lot of other ways of dealing with these problems. Okay, well, look, we'll keep an eye on this and see if there is more discontent than we think. But uh, let's watch it uh, as we go forward. And just one further news story that was of interest, I thought, before we get into the case law. Uh, I note in the Sunday Independent, they say the best law firm, in according to a survey of 1,026 legal professionals carried out by a company called Statista. Have you heard of them, Mark? I haven't heard of them. No, well, I haven't heard of them either, but that doesn't mean anything. Uh, and they say number one is Matheson Solicitors. Hmm. Number two, A&L Goodbody. Number three, McCann Fitzgerald. Number four, Arthur Cox. And then Mason Hayes and Curran. Sure. So I suppose no surprise there, the corporate law firms. 
Well, I mean, you you have to be skeptical about any surveys like this simply because, you know, there are a lot of small practices around the country who do very good work, but they don't feature in the kind of leagues that involve these sort of massive law firms. So, you know, I, I, and and you would wonder to what extent anybody's going to say, right, well, we're going to to, to choose somebody because they're second rather than third. Well, or like absolutely. This. So, but it's kind of like a sprint finish in the Tour de France, isn't it? All these these firms are vying to get across I, I, the, I, I, the line I, first. I can't imagine the statista poll is the most important thing on any of their The, the really interesting thing in this article, I thought, was that uh, it is stated that of these people surveyed, 54.2% of them, remember these are all legal professionals, said they would not recommend law to their children. Yeah, that was very interesting. I mean, what do you I, think? Well, it doesn't surprise me. I think there, <laughs> there are a lot of, um, there are a lot of reasons why people would not be happy working in the law. And while it's very, very interesting, there are a lot of challenges that maybe people hadn't predicted and weren't experiencing. But I think everybody thinks a little bit like that about the job they're in. That's probably true. Faraway hills are green. Okay, let's look at some case law. And we have some really, really good cases, I think, today. And the first Mm -hmm. one we're going to look at is a case called Meehan and Shawcove. And that's a decision from the Court of Appeal. It's a decision of Mr. Justice Noonan. Mm -hmm. It concerned a personal injuries case, damages. And what are the maximum general damages you can get and how you apportion damages. And this is the the, the background to this case is bizarre. This is everybody's worst nightmare when they get into a lift that basically the the injuries suffered here, a number of people were in in a lift, lift, an elevator, and what appears to have happened was that the cable then first stretched and then snapped and they fell, I think, three stories and suffered some pretty nasty injuries. And the plaintiff now let's in go this over case, that again because the detail here is is very interesting. This is like diehard now. Oh, it's appalling. Yeah. Mm. So the lift, the lift fell three floors well, to it, the bottom. It, it first of all sort of uh, it, it sagged a little bit. I think the suggestion was it fell a couple of feet, and then just when they were kind of recovering from that, then it just collapsed altogether and it fell three stories. Wow! So very um, dramatic narrative. Very, dramatic, there. very serious injuries. Serious but the injuries. Plaintiff in this case, the interesting thing was that although he suffered extremely serious injuries and suffered very severe, not surprisingly, psychiatric uh, sequelae or psychiatric injuries. He made what sounds like a pretty good recovery, all things considered, in that he was back to work in about two years after the accident and was able to return more or less to to a full-time job. Now, when the matter came to the High Court, they awarded general damages of €375,000. Okay, now explain to our listeners the difference mm. between general damages and special damages. General damages are given for what is loosely called pain and suffering as opposed to special damage, which is for, for, for actual expense that you've, you've incurred as a result, such as loss of earnings. So, so what they said was that, that for, for general damages to date and into the future, because of the seriousness of his injuries, would amount to 375,000. Yes. Now, the reason that this was appealed was that there's been a, 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 shall we say, a judge-imposed cap on general damages for a number of years, which has been reviewed over time. And this goes back to 1984, I think. Yeah, I think, it? well, it goes back a long way. But Chief it, but Justice O'Higgins, mm. Senate and Quinsworth, am I right? Could, could be, could be. Uh, the, okay. the, the, the current cap, and he was, was set in the Morrissey case fairly recently, and it's half a million. And what uh, Mr. Justice Noonan was looking at was is it a cap or a maximum? And this may sound legalistic, but the distinction was, if it's a cap, then if you say, for example, well, general damages that are appropriate here are 3 million, but we just have to cap it, we we, we slice it off at at, at 500,000, and that's what we grant. If it's a maximum 
then all other general damages awards have to be looked at in the light of the maximum. And what they said was, in a case like this, however serious it was, it does not compare with, say, somebody who ends up quadriplegic, sort of paralyzed from the neck down, something where you're you're suffering catastrophic injuries and can't carry on with your ordinary life. Yes. So, in those so the most extreme form of injury. Exactly. Yeah. Now, this, this, this inj- the injury in question here was very significant, and there were multiple injuries, as you oh, say, yeah. and there was also mm. post-traumatic stress disorder as well on top mm. of the physical injury, injuries that this individual suffered. It took ten years before the case kind of proceeded through the courts, mm. and as a result, I suppose the court was in a position to have a better understanding of how the in- injuries had impacted over a long-term mm. basis. But they were pretty serious in this case. But the individual in question didn't have any special damages. He was able to return to work, I think. Yeah, I, and I think he did have some loss of earnings, but certainly the, I think the, it was the general damages was the issue. Yeah, yeah, general damages, but it was a loss of opportunity, yeah. but that, that was it. Yeah. Okay, so 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 a restricted award there. Yeah. So yet another little bash for the personal injuries bar, I think. Is Indeed. It? But then you, you look if you look uh, at the uh, another case we're going to look at here, the MK case and Sacred Heart Missionary, that's, you could say that goes in the other direction. Um, Okay, tell us about that one. This was the case where um, a person who claimed to have suffered sexual assault as as a child was suing the the educational establishment where he claims to have suffered those injuries. But by the time the case came on for hearing, or even possibly at an earlier stage, he was um, considered not to be of sound mind. And so the case was being brought by a next friend, as they say. So, so, and what happened was... um, an offer was made by the by, by the defendant in this case to settle it in the sum of three hundred and fifty thousand euro. Now, when an offer to settle a personal injuries case is made, where the the plaintiff is either a minor or is not of sound mind, it has to be ruled by the court. Basically, they say, "Do you accept this award, or you, do you bring the case to trial?" And Mr. Justice Garrett Simons looked at this case and he said, there's absolutely no prospect, or I I wouldn't say absolutely no case, but he said it was very, very unlikely that there was any prospect of this case succeeding, partly because of the the age of the case and partly because the plaintiff was of unsound mind. And and it was doubtful that he could give give evidence. And so he said, in those circumstances, an offer of 350000 is extraordinarily good and has to be accepted. Has to be accepted, absolutely. And, that's and what, a no-brainer. And, and the reason that I think that's interesting is that very often you see these kind of cases reported as if the courts have awarded 350000 in a case like this. And the important thing to note is this is not an award by the court. Mr. Justice Simons couldn't have said, oh, no, no, this, is, this isn't appropriate, a, a lower sum. All he has to choose between in this application is accepting the award or allowing the or saying it's not a good enough award and this case should go on. Was it necessary for the judge to go into such detail? Because he did say that this case had been fully defended by the defendants, mm-hmm. so they'd put up a full defence. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he effectively told them when he was, you know, approving this settlement that, you know, you guys were going to win and, well, all, and get an order for your costs. Well, he, he, was that necessary? He, technically, he wasn't saying it to them because these applications are made ex parte, but of course it's published uh, order and they know... they. So, I mean, it may have been... It may be a, a, a nod to the um, to, to the insurance industry or to personal injuries defence that maybe that they are rushing to settle these cases too much, but certainly it was a very good... Uh, settlement in a case where if he's correct in his assessment it couldn't have succeeded. Okay, final case today. Let's have a look at that. And this is a case involving Angartha Shia Kona. Yeah. Uh, and it was an appeal also before Mr. Justice uh, Noonan and it was to do with a Garda who was deemed to have taken something from a Garda car. Tell us more, Mark. 
this, uh, yeah, another uh, peculiar case. But so the background is that the guard was um, on duty, and a colleague of his seized a car in the course of her inquiries. And she, uh, when I think when she went off duty, she she handed the car over to him and specifically told him that the locking mechanism of the car wasn't working. So when he then went off duty, he decided to take any personal items in the car away in order to in order to protect them, presumably. But anyway, he took a Bluetooth speaker from the seized car and put it in his own car. And my understanding is, certainly on his own account, that when he then picked up his young daughter, she saw this and, saw, and asked what it was. He then played some music through this Bluetooth speaker and I think didn't return it for a couple of days. The Garda commissioner was not happy. Well, well, there's two strands to this, and this is the important thing, that it was the subject of an internal complaint. And obviously the Garda, like most organisations, they have a particular procedure for dealing with these kind of complaints. But before this, this, this ended up before GSOC, before the, Ombudsman, the, the Garda Ombudsman Commission. But before it came to a conclusion, and it was still a very open question as to whether he had acted dishonestly, the Garda Commissioner then exercised a power that is available to him under Section 14b of the Garda Shikana Act 2005 to dismiss him summarily on the basis that his continued, um, his continued uh, service in the Garda would bring the Garda into disrepute. Inappropriate, given what had happened. Exactly. And so when this ended up before the Court of Appeal, the Court of Appeal said, well, the, the Garda, the Garda um, uh, Commissioner can't possibly make a finding that he acted dishonestly in circumstances where this is an open question before GSOC. So GSOC haven't decided yet. Exactly. So it was a premature yeah. decision exactly. on the part yeah. of the Garda yeah. Commissioner. Yeah. So this was a judicial review of the Garda, uh, the Garda Commission's So decision. what would have happened in the High Court? Uh, he obviously won his case. So he yeah. judicially it, reviewed the decision of the Garda Commissioner. Yeah. And then the guards appealed that to the court. No, no, no. In fact, the, 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 the High Court upheld the decision of the Commissioner. And sorry, I should just say, just for, for the sake of clarity, it was a letter from the Commissioner saying that he was going to dismiss him. Now, there is a, there is a procedure following that uh, decision to send him a letter warning him of his decision to dismiss and that was the that was what was um, quashed by the Court of Appeal. Okay, so don't rush to the High Court or rush to the Court of Appeal prematurely. Is that the, the moral of the story? No, 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 we went to the High Court first and then to the Court of yeah, Appeal. Yeah, but that's, that's what I'm saying. So, but obviously he went yeah. to the High Court yeah, and then obviously exactly. fell, yeah, followed yeah. into uh, the Court of exactly. Appeal. Thank you for that, Mark. Thank you for your analysis of those cases. Now, we're really honoured to be joined uh, for the next section of the show by Mr. Justice Gerard Hogan, who is a judge of the Supreme Court of Ireland. Um, Ms. Justice Hogan has had a stellar career both as an academic and as a lawyer. Um, he was called to the bar in 1984, having been uh, admitted to the inner bar. He that was ultimately appointed to the High Court in 2010, was one of the first judges of the newly constituted Court of Appeal in 2014, then went to Luxembourg to become an Advocate General in the Court of Justice of the European Union, and then returned to Ireland in 2021 as a member of the Supreme Court. On the academic side, he was a lecturer in Trinity College Dublin from 1987 to 2007. Um, he co-authored the leading book on administrative law. He has been the co-author of, of, the, uh, of Kelly's Constitution, which is the leading book on constitutional law in Ireland. He was also a member of the Constitutional Review Group that uh, published its uh, report in 1996. I think it's fair to say that has not been entirely implemented in full. And I read online that he was recently, in 2021, elected to be a member of the Royal Irish Academy. Um, is it unique for a judge to be a member of the Royal Irish Academy? No, it's not unique uh, because, for example... Um 
Chief Justice, uh, the retired Chief Justice Susan Denham is a is member, <laughs> and the late Mr. Justice Adrian Hardiman <laughs> were member, was a member, so uh, but, it's not unique. But it's certainly a, a singular honour, I think it's fair to say. Well, that's very kind of you to say so. Yeah. Anyway, we're here to talk about the, uh, go, going back to your expertise in constitutional law, this m- month, October 2022, is the centenary of Dole Aaron passing the Free State Constitution, which um, un- under the terms of the treaty had to be passed both in Dublin and by the House of Commons in London. And um, so we're, we, we, we wanted to discuss the, 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 the provisions of that constitution with you. And I suppose my first question was, um, was it was it a radical decision, do you think, to have a written constitution, given that we were moving away from being part of what was then the United Kingdom, uh, which has which famously didn't have and still doesn't have a codified constitution? Um, yes, I think it was. And that was part of the intention of the drafters. Um, it had been in the air for a while uh, because... Um, the radical element of the Free State Constitution was firstly that it was written down at all, sure. uh, and secondly that it borrowed um, promiscuously enough uh, from some of the uh, interwar constitutions which were then current. Uh, the um, drafting committee indeed published, famously published, uh, a sort of a Constitutions of the World document, which they idle. Mm. The, the, itemizing the various constitutions which they looked at. When uh, you say interwar, you, you mean the ones uh, that came into effect after the First World immediately War? Immediately after so the First sort of World 19, War. So the 1918, Exactly. Right. Uh, so, and in particular, they were relying on um, the much admired uh, Weimar Constitution of 1919 right. of, of Germany, which had just, which was mm-hmm. then current. So they were borrowing from that, borrowing a bit from the United States as well. Uh, but the whole, the, the most radical idea of the lot, I suppose, was that there would be, for the first time, judicial review of legislation, that there would be a power given to the courts, the High Court and Supreme Court, as it then was, to invalidate a law on the ground that it contravened the Constitution or infringed fundamental rights. And that was a radical idea, but um, it had been sort of in the air um, because the various home rule bills, um, which again, you know, never really reached the statute book or the one that did was never put into force, um, uh, provided for envisaged that there would be a kind of judicial review of legislation given to the Irish courts. This is within the United Kingdom as part of the safeguards uh, for um, religious minorities. Just going back to the to, to the, the, the the manner in which they they looked at the Weimar Republic and various other constitutions, the decision to look at those those constitutions. We very often, when we look at the newly independent Irish state, we, it, it very, it's very often thought of as being quite an inward looking mm. uh, country. Whereas I think that, that it's, it's fair to say that at that level, anyway, they were very much looking abroad to see what is practice like in other countries. They weren't just looking at English language constitutions. They were borrowing, as you say, promiscuously. From other constitutions. Yeah, absolutely. And because part of the intention of the drafters was mm. that we would have, in a sense, a model state in which would uphold the rights, in particular, of religious and other minorities. Now, it mm. didn't work out that way for various reasons, but that was what they were thinking, that we could prove mm. that an independent Irish state would, in fact, look after everybody mm. uh, and safeguard their rights in a way which 
you know, was a core complaint of nationalist Ireland that that hadn't happened to them yeah. uh, during the currency of mm. British rule and in I, Ireland. And I suppose also, I mean, when when uh, after the First World War, in uh, so many sort of former. Uh, so many small states developed under the sort of Wilsonian principle of kind of self-determination. And, and Ireland was very much trying to establish itself as one of those types of countries, wasn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. Uh, and again, the idea was that we would be a model state that would prove mm. that we were worthy of our independence. And so when, when it came to the the provisions of protecting minorities and that kind of thing, I mean, was that what particular provisions were in place at that stage? Well, Part of this was provided for in the treaty itself, mm. uh, that there would be non-discrimination on religious grounds, uh, and in particular that the right of every child to opt out of religious education that was being provided by a publicly funded school. They were key provisions of the treaty itself. So the constitution had to reflect that, uh, and that's in, um, uh, for example, Article uh, this Article 7, Article 9, sorry, mm. of the uh, of the Free State Constitution provided for non-discrimination on grounds of religion and also provided that um, for this treaty right that uh, children had the right to opt out of religious education. And the idea was that um, if you were getting public funds that, um, let's say, in particular, uh, Church of Ireland children were forced by circumstances to go to a primary school that was predominantly Roman Catholic, that they would have the right to opt out of religious okay. instruction. And um, that is, I think, the only remaining provision, the treaty, that finds expression mm. in the Constitution of 1937. Um, uh, the guarantees of non-discrimination yeah. uh, on grounds of religion plus this right to opt out of religious instruction. I see. And so when you refer back to the treaty then, obviously that's the, kind, that's the kind of foundation stone of the state, isn't it? And then the, the, the free state constitution is the sort of building blocks thereafter. And to what extent is the, the content of the free state constitution just replicating the treaty and, what, and, what, and how much was sort of independently brought in? Oh, a great deal of it was independently brought in but within the constraints of the treaty itself. Yeah. And this is one of the big debates in the first six to seven months of 1922 between the Irish side and the British side. And the British were very anxiously policing the drafting of the constitution to make sure that all of it complied with the requirements of the treaty. Indeed, the first drafts were rejected by the British on the ground that it provided for a republic in name. But mm. you see, there's two... Um, Perhaps just to anticipate slightly, if I may, I mean, the famously the 1922 constitution in a sense collapsed um, and it collapsed for a variety of different reasons. Um, one was a drafting error, which I'll come to, but which had calamitous results. The second was the fact that the 1922 constitution was tied to the treaty. Yeah. Now, it went a lot further than the treaty, but it contained core, there was core elements of the treaty were scheduled, annexed to the Free yeah. State Constitution. And they were declared at the time in 1922 to be beyond the capacity of the Oireachtas to change. Mm. And they included, most controversially, I suppose, for the Irish side, because it was part of the Civil War, um, was the Oath of Allegiance to the Crown and to the Constitution, first to the Constitution, but but. It, it's to the crown, really, yeah. was the objection. Uh, a provision for an appeal 
from a decision of the Supreme Court to the Privy Council in London, yeah. a provision for a governor general, um, a, a, a mainly, mainly but not completely, symbolic restrictions on yeah. the sovereignty of the free state. Mm. Now, it's important to state the free state was from its very outset regarded as an independent state in international law. Mm. It joined the League of Nations early in 1923. So it was regarded as having a, a, a sufficient independent autonomy mm. to be regarded as an independent state of its own right. Uh, but there were cer certain essentially symbolic constraints on, on that sovereignty contained in the treaty. Yeah. There were a couple of things I found... And the constitution. Yeah. I mean, re reading through the, the Free State uh, Constitution, there were a couple of things that seemed very... that sort of st st stuck out. One was that um, it describes the Oireachtas that's constituting the, the Dáil Éireann, the Free State Senate... And the King of England, yeah, and which which seemed both jarring and slightly amusing. The idea that uh, Edward yeah. V was a member of the Oireachtas, but obviously his power was exercised through the Governor General. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Through the mm. I mean, it was a purely mm. notional uh, membership. Of the yeah. Oroctus. yeah, I don't think mm. His Majesty uh, <laughs> considered uh, himself. He stayed awake at light uh, at night thinking about it, but mm. uh, it was purely yeah. notional. I mean, the yeah. idea was was that I mean the Governor the Governor General was so to speak kind of the Pope's vicar on earth. Yeah. Uh, for the British Crown, um, in theory, in 1922, in theory, the Governor General had the power of reserving what was called reserving legislation. In other words, not affixing the Crown's signature mm. uh, to the legislation, but that never happened. Mm. Uh, so, I mean, in in essence, the Crown uh, had a purely theoretical, symbolic uh, existence. Um, in the Free State Constitution. Mm. And the other thing that, that, that leapt out at me was that the Governor-General, I think I have this right, was appointed in the same manner as the Governor-General of Canada, yeah. but was paid the same as the Governor-General of Australia. Yeah. And I, I don't know what the logic was behind that uh, particularly tortuous uh, provision. Well, you see, uh, I mean, we could perhaps get diverted into what happened to the various Governors-General, but ultimately... Essentially, one of them was de facto, constructively, certainly just constructively dismissed yeah. by Mr. De Valera when he came to power in March 1932, mm. James McNeil. He resigned and then he was uh, replaced by Donald Bukula, mm. who was an Irish language enthusiast and who, uh, as our uh, prototype ambassador in the court of St. James in London, described him to the the king as that he owned an emporium in an ancient university town. That was a convenient way of saying that he owned a shop in Maynooth. It was a hardware uh, store. A, a hardware store in Maynooth. <laughs> uh, but essentially he lived uh, and was uh, instructed by de Valera to live a kind of hermit's existence mm. uh, and only be available to sign uh, the le legislation. And indeed, he took it to such lengths that, um, uh, I, I suppose, slightly, perhaps I don't think people were in earnest, but there were certainly questions put put down by the opposition inquiring as to the health of the governor general <laughs> because he hadn't been seen for several months. But that was what de Valera intended, yeah. uh, that, the, that the role would de facto become a non-entity. So going back to the, the, the substance of the constitution, and I mean, it, it, I, to, to simplify the purpose of constitution, I suppose in one sense, it's how you choose the people who have power and mm. how they exercise the power. On the other hand, it's sort of providing for fundamental rights for the citizens. Yeah. And how, how did it, how do you think the free state constitution measured up on those two tests? Um, it, it, a constitution is really essentially a rule book for society. Mm. Um, uh, and that's why it's so fundamental. Um, 
Uh, and especially for a new state, it's important to have the rules set down. You can perhaps do it famously in the United Kingdom because, you know, it's an old state and they have flexible rules that have evolved through the common law over hundreds and hundreds of years. But the 1922 Constitution was well drafted, but not as well drafted as 1937. Right. So the drafters of 1937 learnt a lot from the experience of 1992 and 1937. And besides, De Valera had an amazing advantage in that he had the best legal drafter we've ever produced in the shape of John Hearn. I mean, whatever else you say about the 1937 Constitution, and it's, of course it's frequently decried, all the rest of it, but, I mean, it was drafted by somebody who was just a master craftsman. Right. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why it's still so relevant to mm. this day. Um, so the drafters in 1922 didn't have that, you know, they were very good, not as good as Hearn. Mm. And Hearn, of course, had more time and he wasn't working under the pressures of a civil war. But interestingly, one of the things about it is, is that Hearn himself wasn't even a member of Sinn Féin, the original Sinn Féin. Mm. He was a member of the Irish party. And uh, everybody who'd been involved in the drafting of the 1937 constitution with De Valera, all the civil servants, each of them came from a pro-treaty background. It's quite, quite extraordinary. Mm. Um, uh, but... Um, the, I said a few minutes ago <clears throat> that there were two fundamental flaws with the Free State Constitution. The first was, I suppose, a political one in that it was tied to the treaty. Yeah. Uh, and that was a fatal, uh, certainly for the anti-treatyites, they could never bring themselves to mm. accept that. That was the first thing. The second thing was is that um, it was originally intended that, that uh, every amendment to the Constitution would be done by means of a referendum. But at the last minute, in October 1922, a change was made to Article 50 of the Free State Constitution, which provided that for the first eight years, you could amend the Constitution, other than the bits concerning the treaty, by ordinary legislation. Right. Now, that proved to be an absolutely fatal flaw because it meant that judicial review of, the leg of legislation could never take off. The courts very quickly said, if there's a conflict between an act of the Oireachtas and the Constitution, well, the Constitution is impliedly amended by this act of the Oireachtas. So they said this as early as 1924, and it was essentially confirmed in a, a major decision of the Supreme Court in 1934, the state uh, Ryan and Lennon. So, so... So that was the first thing. And sorry, I should say that the original eight years was extended itself right. without a referendum by ordinary legislation uh, uh, in 1929 so for another eight years. So for the entire period of the Free State Constitution, it could be amended by ordinary legislation. And in the state, Ryan and Lenin, that famous case of the decision of the Supreme Court in December 1934, they sent the majority upheld this. So uh, that was a death knell to the Free State Constitution. So, so just sort of unravelling what you just said, I mean, first of all, when you say that it was a flaw that it was tied to the Anglo-Irish Treaty, I mean, that yeah. couldn't really be avoided prior to no. the Statute of Westminster, which exactly. I think was 1931. 1931, right? yeah. And, and I, I always annoy people by saying that's when we really got our legislative independence was by an act of um, uh, uh, Westminster because that it was after that that de Valera had the power to effectively take apart the treaty. Yeah, the power to take... Um, yeah, he, he, uh, the way I would put it is, is that very quickly he had um, uh, both 
the Cumann Gael government and Fianna Fáil had the power to take apart the constitution because mm. of this drafting flaw of which I've spoken. Yeah. Uh, but the only thing that was then immutable uh, from uh, legislative change was the bits of the constitution that were tied to the treaty, yeah. such as the oath of allegiance and so on. And as soon as de Valera came to power in March 1932, he set about um, uh, purporting to give himself the power yeah. uh, to... Um, uh, amend the constitution in a way that was contrary to the mm. treaty. And, and, and ultimately, the Privy Council in London, in a case called Moore and the Attorney General of the Irish Free State, in June 1935, held that that was lawful yeah. uh, because of the Statute of Westminster. But paradoxically, if you had applied what was said by the Supreme Court in Ryan's case, it would have been unlawful. So, so the Supreme Court of Ireland held that the that that the, the treaty had to be upheld, but the Privy Council in the UK said actually it didn't need. It to didn't be need to be held because okay. of the Statute of Westminster, yeah. and that conflict between the two courts mm. um, was never resolved. Fortunately for Mr. De Valera, mm. during the lifetime of the Irish Free, of the Free State Constitution, and that itself was another reason. Why there had to be a new constitution in 1930. Okay, so it wasn't just that De Valera sort of thought, "Now I'm in power, I can bring in my own constitution." It was actually the fact that there, was uh, such, it, there were so many flaws in, yeah. or fundamental flaws in the 1932 yes, constitution. Yes, that a new constitution was 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 necessary. And you know, um, if one had the time, Mark, and the mm. interest and the inclination, you could go through and compare the two documents and see how they learned. Mm. Uh, in, 1930, in 1937 mm. from the experience in 1922 so that the present constitution has survived mm. and, you know, many people would say thrived in a way uh, uh, despite its various mm. criticisms and flaws and so on, uh, uh, but it has survived in a way and has, has won popular acceptance in a way that the 1922 constitution never did. And can you give a sort of a couple of highlights of the things that that were transferred through from from 1922 to 1937. Um, obviously, the power of judicial review. Yeah, which, uh, which in fact was it was in, it was hugely sort of strengthened. It strengthened by, and, yeah. and augmented yeah. in 1937. Yeah. The list of fundamental fundamental rights, but the list of fundamental rights was yeah. enhanced. And then, in a sense, the constitution was made, if I can use a sort of big mm. word, um, uh, autochthonous, if you like. It was purely domestic. So. It was our own idea mm. to create a president yeah. and to eliminate the crown completely, yeah. uh, to create a council of state, um, you know, to, to create effectively all the institutions of state mm. that we take for granted today. Yeah. And the, the decision then to enact the 1937 constitution by popular referendum mm. wasn't technically necessary until 1922, but having been done, then that effectively meant that thereafter it could only be amended by popular referendum. Yes. Um, um, two things on that. Um, actually, in legal terms, the 1937 constitution was revolutionary because right. it didn't purport to use the mechanism of 1922. Right. It just essentially created what we call a, a new grund norm, a new basic law uh, uh, without reference to what happened before. Right. So it wasn't, the 1977 constitution mm. wasn't in any sense an amendment of 1922. Yeah. Uh, and say for a technical, short tech period um, uh, where technical amendments only were permitted, after 1941, it can only be amended 
by referendum. And that is in some ways the biggest defining change between the present constitution and 1902. So, the, so there was, sorry, Peter Leonard coming in here. Judge, this is fascinating. I, I always thought there was a touch of the vanity pro project about de Valera's 1937 constitution. You're saying no way it was necessary and it was, you know, it was something that needed to be done and there, there were there were flaws in the constitution that had to be got rid of. Yeah. And, and this this guy, uh, John Hearn, is mm. a fascinating character. I didn't know about him, mm -hmm. so, so I'm fascinated by it. But there was no facility for a referendum in the 1922 constitution. Is that the case? Well, there was in theory, but, it, but the amendment that they made in October 1922, allowing for am amendments by ordinary legislation for eight years and then extending that period it, itself again in 1929 for another eight years, uh, rendered, there was no referendums between 19, 1922 and 1937. The first referendum was held on the second, in this state, was held on the 2nd of July 1937 to enact the present constitution. Yes. So, okay. so even getting rid of the Governor General in 1936 was done by legislation and Ordinary not by Ordinary legislation, yeah. yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Okay. And just, you talked about how we had learned from the from other countries. Did, uh, did any other countries learn from the 1922 constitution? Because obviously 1937 was quite influential in the post-war. Um, uh, yeah, um, I, I think most of, the most of the independent states have been created by 1922. You yeah. know, post-First mm. World War states yeah. had already been ex in existence. Like say Finland, mm. you know, mm. had its constitution in 1917. Mm. The Czech Republic or Czechoslovakia, 1920. Poland, 1920. So they all predated the yeah. 1922 constitution. Mm. The, the countries that, if you like, borrowed from us uh, are principally India, yeah. uh, but borrowed from the 1937 yeah. constitution. Yeah. Yeah. Again, it was kind of the 1937 constitution as kind of a living, breathing document. Mm. And would you say that the availability of having referenda in order to, let's say, upgrade you know, rights under the con constitution. Is that why it's so... Now, you, you talked about this man, Mr. Mr. Hearn, mm. who you say was just uh, an incredibly good draftsman and, yeah. and got it right day one yeah. and gave us a, a va very valuable document. Mm. But is, is, is that what keeps it kind of contemporary and moving with the times? Is, is that... Um, well, I mean, it, it, first, uh, it is, you know, it's designed to be a living document and, and it's drafted so well that it admits of that. Um, that's the first thing. The second thing is that um, by ensuring that only it can only be changed by referendum means that uh, for most of the life of the 1937 constitution, it's been relatively static. Now, some people might say that's actually a bad thing because there were things in it we wanted to get rid of. But the pace of referenda has perhaps accelerated over the years. But I would say, broadly speaking, now this is uh, overstating it a little bit, but broadly speaking, the changes from um, in the last 50 years um, uh, in the various referenda we've had have can be really come into three categories. One is more secularization of the Constitution. Yes. So, say, December 1972, getting rid of the, the special position of the Catholic Church as guardian of the faith of the, the majority of the people. Yes. Now, not, it's, it's often stated it was a special position. It wasn't a special position full stop. It was only in that capacity it was a special position. But that was one thing, uh, you know, and then you've had various referenda on divorce, abortion, and even up to most recently, say, removing the reference to blasphemy yes. uh, in 2018. So the Constitution has become more secular 
and less nationalistic, of course, as part of the Good Friday Agreement, perhaps less nationalistic than it was. That's one type of change. The other types of change are obviously our relationship with the European Union that has required a series of referenda. And then um, finally, I suppose, perhaps and less importantly, um, certain types of institutional change. So, for example, the the establishment of the Court of Appeal uh, in 2013 would be a paradigm example. But the central tenants probably have remained pretty much unchanged since 1937. Absolutely. Come here, this has been absolutely fascinating, but I want to move you in a different direction, Mm -hmm. Judge, if if, if you don't mind. You recently wrote an article for the Northern Ireland Law Quarterly, Mm -hmm. and it had a very curious title, I thought, and it was... Can judges or should judges be neutral? Mm. Now, is that not stating the obvious? Uh, yes, it is, but it's easier sta- but it's easier said than, than done because judges sometimes have to make decisions. Oh, I mean, all the time have to make decisions that have consequences for individuals, but sometimes have to make decisions that will be uh, very inconvenient, uh, uh, will have severe consequences for society at large. And, um, you know, especially, for example, if, as happens maybe about once a year, a, a law is found unconstitutional, that yes. would nearly always have ripple effects through society, which sometimes are, wouldn't necessarily anticipate. So are we talking about the bigger picture? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Uh, the real question is, is um, let me give you an example, a, a British example, which I mentioned in that paper from 1941. Uh, where during the Second World War, the question was, did the British government have to give reasons why somebody was being interned? Uh, and the majority, majority of the House of Lords, effectively their Supreme Court at the time, 4-1 said they didn't. Now, that is regarded as a wrong decision and wouldn't be followed today. And indeed, the judge who dissented was was in fact uh, sort of sent to Coventry by his colleagues. They never spoke to him again after that decision. Uh, And I mentioned this to show the courage of the dissenting judge, Lord Atkin, because he made a decision that he knew would be extremely unpopular. This is right in the middle of the war and a decision with, you know, if it had been accepted, would have had grave consequences. And he was regarded as not playing his, in a sense, yes. patriotic duty. Now, that's an extreme yes. example, but it's, you know, there are a lot of, it's easy to say, oh, justice is blind and the courts don't have regard to the consequences of their decision. And I think broadly speaking, they don't and they shouldn't. But judges are human too. And sometimes you have to take a kind of holistic picture and it isn't simply... in. But it's the, old, it's, it's the classic of law and justice. Sometimes the two, you know, they should mm. run in parallel. Yeah. Sometimes they don't. Yeah. Well, I mean, law ultimately is a human creation. Yes. And by definition, there will be imperfections in it, not least in the people who are administering it, namely the judiciary. Yes. I mean, and I mean, in, 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 in the case of the article, now you referred to that case from, from the, the interwar years, uh, but you referred to a case, a very famous case from the started in the 1980s, mm. uh, and it was referenced, I think, by Colin Tobin in his in his book, book The yeah. Heather Blazing, yeah. a, a fictional account, and that yeah. was the case of Eileen Flynn against yeah. Power. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, yeah, um, that was a case where uh, Miss Flynn had uh, was a teacher in a girls' secondary school in uh, in County Wexford. Yes, uh, and uh, she 
was having a relationship with a person, to a man to whom she was not married. There was complaints from the um, uh, parents. They came to the attention of the principal. And the principal essentially said, look, this is a Catholic school uh, and we have Catholic values to uphold and you are giving bad example, essentially, to, to, to the girls. Uh, and will you desist from your relationship with this man? And she refused to do so and was then ultimately dismissed. Now, um, you know, it, it, she also, I think, was pregnant at the time. Yes. Uh, and it was presented, or is now, I think, presented as a case where she was dismissed on grounds of pregnancy. I think it's much more complex than that. Um, but, you see, there is a balance to be struck between the rights of religious organizations to yes. run their own affairs. You may or may not subscribe to those religious doctrines or tenets, but it's part of a free society that... Uh, you have the right to do so. And um, anyway, in uh, why I thought Column to Bean's book, The Heather Blazing, is a must read for every lawyer and indeed for, for everybody because it's a fantastic novel, as you would expect Absolutely. Column to Column to Bean. But he shows a profound insight into judicial psychology because his fictional judge is considering... Um, a major constitutional decision in which he would which he would expand the definition or the understanding more accurately of family rights in the constitution to yes. embrace this type of situation and he says to himself why are they not a family and he reflects on it and he thinks um you know maybe you know he said that this would require a lot of research and thought and he says to himself in the book he smiles and he says you know another judge could write this but I won't. And the reason he won't is because he's concerned that of peer pressure from his colleagues, because his colleagues will think even privately that he had, so to speak, you know, gone off on the deep end, if I can put it that broken way. Broken the party line. Broken the party line, exactly. Okay, so fascinating. And so, so where do you come down on whether a judge should be neutral or not. Oh. I mean, is it all about following the law? I go in and say, look, this is what the law says, judge. You know, yeah. it might be a sad story, but this is what the law says. Um, it, it's one of the most difficult features of judging. Um, <clears throat> I said in the article that judges are at their best when they try to apply, apply the text before them neutrally without regard to the consequences. But judges are human beings of as course. well. And it's not that they are cowed or lack courage, but they have to sometimes take a broader perspective, a bit like those four judges in the, in the majority in that 1941 case in Britain of which I've spoken, you know, that they said, look, we're fighting a war here. Uh, you know, if the Nazis win, all the liberties that we're speaking about will be gone. So I wish I had an yes. easy answer for you. It's a huge philosophical question. It's a huge philosophical question. Yeah, okay. Well, that's absolutely fascinating. I think, Mark, we have a, we have a question. Thank we, you to we, Mr. Justice Hogan for being okay. here. We and want a parting question, Mark. Indeed. Well, as, as our first guest on the Fifth Court, we have a question that we hope to ask all of our guests. Do you have a book or piece of art 
of, of any nature that you would like to recommend to any members of the legal profession or law students? Yes, okay. There's many, many uh, instances of this. I mean, I think uh, the Ruin McCormack's book on Supreme Court mm, is a brilliant, brilliant book. Yeah. Mm. Um, uh, and I'd say to any law student, uh, read that book. And if you don't find it interesting, then you should ask yourself something really else. <laughs> whether you should be doing law. That's the first thing. But uh, very quickly, I would recommend, I'm a huge admirer of um, the US Supreme Court, love Oliver Wendell Holmes, and I strongly recommend Richard Posner's uh, The Essential Holmes, published by the University of Chicago in 1992. Posner himself having been, I think, a Supreme Court judge. No. Oh, no. He, he was... Uh, no, he was one of the greatest judges who never made it to the US Supreme Court. For pieces of music, okay, I love Bach, I love Wagner, I love Mahler, but I let you into a secret. The composer whose work I really, really love the most... Jean Sibelius. And um, I'm going to recommend two of his lesser known symphonies Symphony Number no. 3 in C major, Opus 52, and the Sixth Symphony, uh, really written in the Dorian key, an old fashioned modality in the line of Palestrina. I think it's Opus 102 or 104 uh, from 1923. And these are two of the most, I promise you, two of the most brilliant pieces of works uh, that possibly a lot of you have never heard. And uh, are you recommending them uniquely to lawyers or do you think other people might find them oh, worth listening to as well? Oh, everybody will. will anybody who loves music I will think I'm find, going to have to dish, find, dish my will, Sex Pistol CD I, I, after I, that. Yeah. I was expecting Motorhead to be honest. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this was not absolutely that, wonderful, Mark. That was Mark. a fantastic interview. Thank you very much, Mr. Justice Jared Hogan. You're wonderful uh, for, for coming us into for us. First, first episode. Okay, it was a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you Thank so you. much. Okay, so that's all from this, the first episode of The Fifth Court. I hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, if you have any comments, you can contact us. We have a web page and uh, you can contact us on LinkedIn. You can get it on all the standard platforms on which podcasts are broadcast. I'd like to say a massive, huge thank you to Mr. Justice Jared Hogan for coming in and being such a fascinating guest. So from myself, Peter Leonard, and from my co-barrister, Mark Tottenham, a very good evening to you and we'll talk to you soon. And parting word, if people would share this, we're trying to build up an audience. So until the next time, goodbye. Never miss a vital Irish legal judgment. Check out Decisis Law Reports, where you'll find a fully indexed collection of all Irish judgments delivered since 2011. Visit decisis.ie to find out more.